gentlemen welcome back to episode 33 of pounding the table let's call this one the scotty pippen episode because we got our little sidekick from chicago who's going to drop another gem after he surfaced up callaway and some solar stocks last week you know we figured we'd give him another shot as we enter into the month of june that is going to be our one-year anniversary of doing this podcast so in the coming weeks we're going to have a lot more informative tweets. We're going to have two new weekly emails. And we decided to sell out a little bit. We're going to start the Twitter spaces running every Wednesday at about 5 p.m. So, Tony, give them the disclaimer quick. Absolutely. I just want to say first, I'm excited to be bringing out all this new content to the Pounders. We do so much research every week, and we try not to make our podcast six hours long, so you'll actually listen to them. Uh, this is the way to get out the rest of the information to you guys in cool ways. So without further ado, the disclaimer, the thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion and of our own personal investments. Everything said on every episode of Pounding the Table, as well as our Twitter account, are not and should never be used as financial advice recommendations or solicitation do your own dd of course that's like the first thing to do in trading at all and for those of you who are new pine the table is a podcast by avi mash and anthony ohio yours truly talking about the stock market the art of options trading and each week we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted without further ado avi let's get things going And we want to get back to the basics, Tony, get back to that core of what pounding the table is truly all about. So have a little more structure in the podcast. So we're going to start off back how we used to do it with what happened last week. So Tony, what did the markets do? I mean, of course, the markets in the last three months, four months have been really insane, right? So we always try to touch on what we feel is most important. So macro has been obviously the driving factor among every sector and honestly, every stock you've looked at in the last three months. And, you know, macro is starting to look a little bit easier for us. You know, it's a little less of like every single day we kind of figure out what's going on and how bad it'll get. I think a lot of the inflation fears have kind of come out and we'll see that, you know, either subside or inflame in the next couple months. But I think the Fed's actually right on this one. I think it is transitory. I mean, obviously, you see the prices of commodities going so insane. You see this pent up demand that we talked about so many times, you know, all from that cruise line data. That's like the craziest tell ever, right? Like that's a luxurious item that causes like back then caused you to get COVID if you went on. So people were always excited to be out and about. And I think that now that they can, you know, the economy is broadening as a result. And so is the market, right? So stocks that we thought wouldn't come back for years are coming back way faster. I think a lot of people were worried about the Fed. The Fed's been continuously saying they're going to keep supporting us until they get those target numbers, right? And we're still very far away from the unemployment target and the inflation target, right? Of course, we've increased by that amount, but of course, unemployment's not going to stay at where people are thinking it's going to go to three, four, five, ten percent. I don't think that's going to be the case. They overlook a lot of the deflationary things that tech and automation causes. Right. So it could be the situation, I think I was mentioning this before, where you can see higher unemployment and the economy is busting even harder just because a lot of those jobs get cycled out, right? Like this economy's upshifting, you know, this change in paradigm that's happened because of COVID. 
I don't think it's going to go away, right? You see more people on gig economy than ever, right? People are trading Dogecoin. People are on Fiverr, right? Those are things that are going to start staying because, you know, going to college, paying 60000 a year when you're doing it from your computer makes it feel a lot less important. All right, Tony, let's dive a little bit deeper, though, into the specifics of last week. Let's start with crypto. You know, we've seen and we kind of called this almost where some of that crypto money is going to go back to the growth stocks. But elaborate on that a bit. There's just a lot of uncertainty, man. And anytime there's uncertainty in any asset class, people start to think, right? Like, when it seems like there's a free lunch going on, you eat until you're full. But you know, as soon as you start having a stomach ache, you start realizing maybe I should lay off the fucking pop tart. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's true, right? So like, crypto just had this euphoric craze, as SPACs did, as you know, as value names are having right now, honestly. And so like, when you started talking about 80% possible taxes, or you know, China banning this, and $10,000 transactions need to be monitored by the IRS, this and that, and like by the Treasury, all, there's just a lot going on, right? And I think. It's different in terms of, you know, when I was saying when the market was ripping and growth names and and the speculative small caps and all these, that's because of the, there was no friction. It was just expansionary, expansionary, let's rip, let's run, right? Rates started coming up, like we said, it changed. And I think crypto kind of hit a wall because it was about how far could it run before it hit that wall? And these are a lot of the things that are going to be impacting it over time, right? Theoretically, they could manipulate it like they did to make it go down. But I think there's a lot more money in better opportunities in growth names and other stocks that are on the markets where, you know, yeah, maybe you get an increase in the corp tax rate or cap gains or whatever, but it's not going to be that 80% crypto and that scrutiny for every $10,000 transaction. So I think there's a little bit of a difference. there. Yeah. So, I mean, I know we're going to get into this in a little bit, but like why growth stocks specifically? Is there the same people that are buying crypto are buying growth stocks you're thinking? I think a lot of it's just like human nature. I think humans have pretty much two modes. It's Fear or, you know, FOMO. And FOMO is different. It's like, it's not just FOMO in terms of that. It's just like that euphoric, like, let's push forward, let's run. So I think there's risky people and non-risky people. I think the risky people don't care about buying Shiba Inu or Dogecoin. Like, they'd rather buy that every day of the week. You know, it doesn't hurt their stomach versus Home Depot, right? So those people are usually the same people who are buying the high cap spec growth names. They're usually younger people. They have more time to have those investments pan out, right? Like I was buying Bitcoin in 2014, 15. So I didn't care because I had time to see if it would work. And so those guys are the ones who are running through all these different asset classes that either have a lot of short interests or just have that potential for crazy gains. Like there's nothing in the world that's ever going to be as incredible as crypto in terms of percents. Like it's just not mathematically going to be there. And if it is, it's something that we haven't created yet, which will be cool. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that when it comes. Let's keep going rapid fire. I love this. So we had a question here about like the 10 year trailing off. Shout out Mike Detman, who loves the 10 year more than anyone I've ever yeah, seen. So we got the, the 10 year trailing off as well as some earnings, right? We saw snow Vives, yes. Earnings responded pretty well after that big drop on snow. I know I, I, I threw a lot of right. option in there and looked like an idiot for a minute and then kind of looked like a genius. 10 year is pretty much the indicator for the risk on or risk off, right? So as the 10 year starts to go down, right? Like people have more appetite for risk because you're getting less of a riskless rate. And that's just kind of how that works, right? So it's an ebb and flow between if, you know, conditions are suspicious, right? Like people are going to be buying bonds more so than they're going to be buying like, you know, small cap growth names or even just big tech, mid cap, whatever. Those, they'll buy big tech because that has cash and that has revenues and easy to tell where they're going to be going. And you don't have to worry about them getting screwed by interest rates or anything or debt. But yeah, I mean, that it's just a risk on or risk off kind of thing to, to look at, right? And we talk about that a lot with the macros, like rates do matter, Fed matters, tapering matters. Those things are being talked about more than ever. 
So I think all that kind of hit really hard all at once because we were expecting 2024, 2022. And I think that kind of happened this year. And a lot of people were caught off guard from it, myself included. I didn't think it'd be that quick, that fast. But seeing Snow and Vive and ZS do well on their earnings now versus like the last few weeks, right? Like Fiverr got crushed, Etsy got crushed. A lot of great companies got crushed on their earnings that are in the same basket of like, you know, market cap and revenues and that as these companies. So it's about the reaction, right? Like you're seeing that, yes, snow can sell off, but the next day doesn't sell off 10 or 20 more percent. And snow is like one of the highest PE. Like that's a, that is the definition of like risk on or risk off. Granted, like I get it. They have a lot of institutional ownership. The float is specific, this and that. But regardless, that has a really, really, really high multiple, right? So for that to actually recover and go green the next day, the risk on vibe is kind of more so there. Uh, same with Vive and ZS, because right, those are software names. Those are the ones that are in that basket of most of the growth that we talk about. Yes, yeah, no, Tony. That's one of those companies that is a, a beast, right? They're a beast of a company. They're going to be around, in my opinion, for for quite some time. Let's see how the market reacts. It reminds me of Salesforce more or less, and uh, they have a, obviously a very high PE, high multiple right now. Let's bring in our uh, resident young man, Riley. What's going on with GME and AMC? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I'm, I'm pretty young, so I get to see these uh, meme stocks more in action with my friends being the main participants in these names. Uh, so they're like talking nonstop about AMC and the outrageous price target, saying it's going to make a GME type move into the hundreds or even thousands. Yet they don't understand AMC has 450 million shares when GME has 70 million shares. It's a pretty big difference. At $100, AMC would be a $45 billion company pretty close to where Ford's at, where GME is $7 billion at $100 uh, level. Not mentioning the more shares outstanding, the more resistance the price has. These people buying AMC at these levels, talking fundamentals, need to understand dilution before mentioning anything about fundamentals associated with AMC. Long-term new movies will be streamed at home and theaters will be less and less prevalent. Tony, you're a French guy. Shout out real quick to Casey and Leah Goldman, who are our new favorite French couple, Mazel Tov. It's keeping up with this phrase, though, deja vu. You keep saying this over and over and over again. You know, being from Minneapolis, those who know, has a little different meaning. But what, what do you mean when you keep saying deja vu? I'll tell you what I want to like. I want to know what you mean by that. What is that? A, we can't say that on the podcast. Yeah, no, we can't. All right. Anyway, so deja vu. Yeah, you know, last time, if you look at the charts and like when GME and AMC and all these like highly shorted kind of like spec plays that are like low cap, easy to move kind of names, the Wall Street bet crowd, they started moving like mid Jan, right? And then we had the hype of growth, like the peak hype, like towards the end of February, right? So I'm kind of thinking like, is this a deja vu experience, right? Like we saw some small caps get those short squeezes, get those runs starting in January. And we've kind of been seeing that recently too. Like IPOE had a heck of a squeeze, GHVI, right? Matterport had a heck of a squeeze too. So seeing that there are some companies that are having these nice reversal squeezes, right? Like I think it's more of like a, a market, a systematic thing, right? It's like, each of these companies and asset classes will get run at some point because there's, you know, for instance, like skills, we can talk about that. That has the ultimate short squeeze, right? Possibility because Please. there's really no shares to squeeze. Like every week they say like, okay, the borrow is done. You can't borrow on skills. The borrow is done. And the same with Nanox, right? And like Nanox bounced from under 20 to 27 on Friday and then it trailed off back to 25. But regardless, like there's a limit to the downside, right? As, as there's a limit to euphoria, there's a limit to the downside as well because it's just reverse euphoria. 
right? And there's actually like mathematically less euphoria should happen towards the downside because you know that the end goal is zero there versus like to the moon on the other direction. So I think that the intelligent thing that a lot of these people will be doing, right? And I think these investors have had some time to figure it out. Like these Wall Street bets, these this kind of newer crowd that entered the market in March, you learn about valuations, you learn about fundamentals, you learn about short squeezes, especially if you're already playing GME and AMC, right? So I think something like, I, I retweeted this thing from, from growth to value, talking about all these new uh, SPACs that are like, you know, pre-D pre, uh, SPAC, and they're super high short interest, right? Like skills, IPOE, CCIV, those are all over 20. And like, I think IPOE has something like 31% short, right? And so you're seeing that there is such a heavy direction that people are betting to one side. And I just kind of want to touch on ARC for a second. Like, I think towards the bottom of, I think it was the exact bottom. The day before, I was seeing a chart, uh, someone reposted about like how much people want tech stocks in their portfolio. It's like the lowest level since like 2008 or something. It was insane. And then you see that there was the highest amount of ARC puts ever on ARC. It's just insane. And the premium was crap. There was so much demand that it was actually like, you would not make money buying it and you didn't make money because it reversed. And that's why, because everyone tried to tip the boat to one side. And then if you don't tip it, you swing to the other direction. So we might be able to see a lot of these squeezes. And, and a lot of the time, I think it might happen around this de-SPAC moment. So I think people have this like trauma, I guess, in some, which is silly. And we'll talk about that when we go into CMLF soon, but there's like a trauma of like the SPAC went from 10 to 40 to 20. I hate it. Versus if it went from 10 to 20 for the 80th time, I've said this on the podcast, you'd be happy, right? Yeah. So those things end up reversing, right? Like I always say this, fate loves irony, the good guy turns into the bad guy. This is kind of how that, that happens. Like I saw a bunch of Fintwits start buying into value names, a bunch of companies that like have negative PEs, have negative growth and are so diluted from the pandemic that, you know, there's nothing that I think that they're going to be doing that's better return for them in the long run than mm -hmm. to be squeezing the other side of the trade that they already milked. Um, and I think, you know, you see that a lot of these facts are becoming part of the Russell. They're going into the index. And that's why I always say like, watch the rut, because that is like an index that kind of shows you an appetite for risk. I know you're high on tech, right? But like, let's talk about cannabis for a second here. Right? We got <laughs> MSOS is one that we brought back, you know, several episodes ago, but there was a big move here, a little catalyst. Talk to that. And I think that we're just seeing every couple of weeks, like some more news pointing towards this country becoming like legalizing cannabis, like decriminalizing it. And I think that those things will just happen over time. We have a very progressive government, right? They're throwing a ton of money into EVs, renewables and stuff like that. Like it's a very similar crowd who likes marijuana and wants it to be a legal drug versus like throwing thousands of people in jail. And like, however you feel on that, regardless, like I'm just saying data points here. It seems like that's going to be happening, right? More and more states are going medical. More and more states are starting to be recreational and already decriminalizing. And the legislation to remove the federal ban on marijuana was introduced again in the U.S. House last week. So I think that we're starting to see that this will eventually happen, right? So I've been starting to accumulate MSOS again. Like I, I love it as an ETF just because it's got a bunch of those great income producing U.S. companies that are not just like making a small amount of revenue, like the great valuations, honestly, with a lot of profit. I think something like TCNNF, which is also in the Bible, that owns like 64% of all the stores in Florida. And there's multiple stores now in Key West. So they're making a lot of moves there. And I think that as soon as it just becomes all good everywhere, you'll see a lot of these things start to churn up. I think they're just waiting for it. So a show I used to love is 24. And they used to say Jack is back. But this time we're talking about Square, right? They, they're getting into banking. Talk to us a little bit about that news and why you were so excited about that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like automation, right? You're cutting out the middleman. You're becoming more optimal, more efficient. Just because, right? Like, let's say you use a Square credit card or you use a Square thing. Like, you pay your card, your Visa card, you know, tells Square to send you this much money. So you pay Square, then Square pays them, then they pay Square, then you pay with Square, right? And so, like, it transfers like 10 times, right? It's like the checking and the savings joke by Kevin Hart. It's hilarious. So Square cuts out the middleman, right? Like, you pay with a card, it's done instantly, like, no middleman. So it's lower fees that is going to be the future, right? Like you're, you're taking a hit at banking because if they're able to do this and all, everything else they have going on, they are like a fintech giant and they will become huge because people already use it. There's so many people that just use it for what they have now that once they start getting into banking, why wouldn't you just bank in a place, especially if you're a millennial or younger guy, like this just seems like where you'd be banking, right? Like no one really trusts Wells Fargo anymore. Like if you have any intelligence, I don't really trust these banks, right? Like you have FDIC and SPIC, sure, but for 250 and this and that, and like, what do I think is going to have a likelihood higher to do something wrong is probably one of those companies that have already done a lot of things wrong. I feel like we're on like part of the interruption. We're just like rocking and rolling right now through this list. The next on the list is SE into the MSCI index. I'm going to pretend like I know what that means. What does that mean for everyone that's like me? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's indexes, indices and funds, right? And they have like different allocations in their mandates that they want to buy, right? So if a certain company gets to this, like the S&P 500, they have to be profitable for two quarters, this, that. And like, there's a lot of things that go into it, but eventually a company is able to get into an index or this and that. And so basically SE was able to get into this index, which is the emerging market index. And that's why you saw that big move on Thursday. That was just algo buying because they had like institutional buying. They had to add that in the index. And so those things are kind of happening. Like you're seeing a lot of these growth names become larger than life, honestly, and start getting added to these like big, like these blue chip indices and these blue chip funds. And you're seeing that like the growth does go from, from growth to value. And that's kind of how I, I think any company is, right? And I think we put this, name on tech is like tech, right? But like, what doesn't have tech? Like, is a cruise ship not technically tech, right? It's just like, what has better margins and operating income? Like, that's just the end of the day. So you're seeing a lot of these companies prove their worth and the world's recognizing it. So last week, we talked about the upcoming splits between NVIDIA and TTD, right? Both love stocks. What does this mean now? Do you think that was why these stocks have started to run a little bit? Yeah, I mean, these splits are not in a long time. So I think people are, you know, getting into these things because it's the same as like Tesla, right? Like when Tesla had their split because it was like a $2,000 plus stock, it was like very, very hard if like you or I, you know, if you don't like, no one always thinks about these fractional shares, right? You got to actually psychologically still think about it. Like having 0.5 shares is not the same as having five shares, even if it's the same valuation, right? So people are buying these stocks into thinking, right? They're going to have more shares. They're going to have a bigger position, even though it's not, it's just a psychological thing. And of course, like, it's just a thing that people do, like people will buy into their biases. And, you know, one nice thing about humans is that like, that greed bias lets you be wrong and make you buy more just because you think you have more. So that always happens with stocks when they split, they run, especially the illiquid ones like Tesla and like TTD. So I think, you know, TTD had a bigger run than NVDA, but NVDA is a monster. And I would be shocked if it's not a thousand, you know, pre split number. I think that's probably a hit after just because liquidity and people feel like, Hey, like I can buy NVIDIA at 150 or 200 bucks a share feels better mentally. So I'll buy more stock. And uh, that's just the way it rolls. Uh, just to add on that, I was looking at the Tesla chart and just from the day that they announced the split to the very top, like the very all time high, they ripped $611 for 213% in five months pretty incredible move there from an announcement to the all-time high. Now, obviously it's down quite a bit, 
it's down about, you know, 40, 50% from that high, but you know, 114% from that announcement to the current price. So still pretty massive move. I would say for something like that, the stock. Let's switch gears just a little bit to my favorite lady, Kathy Wood. What is, what is going on with ARC? It's almost like all of these funds just like went after her, attacked her, and it's just all growth. So this is all a fin to it pretty much. So like, wh- what's going on with ARC? Right. This? Yeah, first of all, you know, people got to know who they side with, whether it's good or bad, and zoom out, of course, because she's still crushing everyone else on the street. So it's a joke. If There's people who think that she's going to blow up. Do they know how an ETF works? Like, those are the things that I have issues with. It's like the same people who are like, Coinbase CEO and CFO sold their shares on IPO day. Well, how else do you do a direct listing? You have to get the shares from somebody. So people just don't get shit. And that's, you know, while we're here. But I want you guys to understand, like, ARC is an ETF. It does not, it's not just going to implode because of margin and this and that, right? They have to be invested. A lot of the trades are not just their trades because they're like, oh, I'm super bullish this name or this and that. They're balancing out what they think it is based on the daily movements, right? So people are trying to front run and trade that. It's actually reactionary, in my opinion. So that's one thing to know. And also, we were talking about this earlier. It tried to break out, and there's a huge downtrend line, right? Like from the high, from the second retest, and there was a third retest on Friday. And it could not get over it, which makes sense, right? Like Friday, options are cheap. People don't want to pay the premium. The market makers don't want to pay your premium for you. So they'd rather you expire worthless, which happened to me on a couple of positions. It just happens because you think it's going to break out, right? Like ARC ripped and it was almost touching. It went over the 200 daily moving average, which everyone looks at, even though like the move was probably going to the VWAP at 117, but I digress. So I think that that's something huge to note that either it's going to break out really hard in the next week or so, or it'll probably retrace to the bottom of that downtrend channel, probably near 106 or so. So that's the index that you watch if you're invested in tech that's not like big tech and growth and spec at all, because that's another index ETF kind of thing that you can think about. Like, you know, people look at the S&P 500. If you're invested in these kind of names, you should look at ARC, right? Like that's an IWO, Russell's growth ETF, right? Because that's proxies for risk appetite. Um, but I think eventually ARC is going to break that downtrend because you can see other stronger names that are not just subjected to every single position in ARC that some of them got clobbered a lot more than the other quality names. Those are starting to break out like Fiverr, for example, broke out of that down wedge. And I think a lot of things are bouncing off their anchored VWAPs. Like we were, I posted this chart a couple weeks ago, Roku, TTD, you know, Fiverr, all these names hit that VWAP and they bounce and ARC's under it, right? So ARC's underperforming some of the highest quality ones. And if those are breaking out, ARC will follow, but just it's not as strong. So it's not in the lead right now yet. All righty, Tony. Now it's time to get into the actual episode. I feel like the past few ones, we've really just gone super macro. Like after Jam Croissant, we got addicted to that stuff, right? But Pounders come to pounding the table for the pounds. You know, that's what they want. They want that deep dive into individual companies, surfacing both the good and, of course, the bad. Like, we're just bringing insights to everyone, right? So, Tony, we got to dive into your baby, SEMA4. Genomics, over the past few weeks, past few months even, have been beaten down. What's going on there? Like, SEMA4, you're still pounding the table on this? Mm-hmm. Mm, you know what I think about this one, Avi. Honestly, here's the thing. Like, this is a lot of the times in the market recently, I've been where you test your conviction, right? Like, conviction is a double edged sword, right? Conditions get bad, you should get out, this and that. Fine. Depends on the kind of investor you want to be, right? If you know you have a gem and you think it's stupid at this price, then do what you want to do. And my choice for that is to hold it, right? Because I waited seven years for Tesla to be a 30, 40 bagger. And in the process of waiting, I bought a car that now cost me $1.6 million. Right. So I don't want to make that mistake again, because think about it, like 
Ethereum and Bitcoin, you could have not been in for the last five years, but if you missed it and you bought it in February or March, like it's a different return, right? So if you think you're in something that you know is going to be good early, I think that that's a, a very important point to have in your conviction versus just, you know, bias is different, right? Like, so that's like qualitative versus quantitative. And so I want to dig into both here about SEMA 4. I think it's a great example to talk about because it's one of my favorite names, one of my largest positions. But I also think that it kind of exemplifies a lot of what's going on in the market. And we can learn a lot through talking about it. Plus, I want to just like pound the table on I think everyone should literally go to SEMA4.com and get a test and do it because like I'm going to. It's I'll, I'll dig into the numbers. That's I'm getting out of my ad, by the way. <laughs> Literally not an ad. I actually think it's a fantastic there. thing for everyone to do, honestly. And like, you know, we've had a lot of people tell us that because we talk about genomics, they've done a lot with it and they've bettered their lives and those of others. So I think it's important to share that message because I deeply believe in it. That's why I invest in these companies in the first place. So everyone has concerns about these bio companies in the market. Of course, they're the ones that have to deal with FDA approval, accuracy, right? Like potential downfalls from the drug side effects, this and that. But I think people are completely misunderstanding this company because I keep seeing these things on Twitter. People are like, you know, I'm worried about bio companies. I, I, I'm worried about, you know, SPACs in general, right? You have to look at everything individually, right? Of course, we talk about macro. That's the, you know, the non-individual risk, right? That's all the risk for every, every sector, right? It depends, right? It'll affect it differently versus just like individual names, right? Because it could take some time for those names to do well. But if those names, you know, if you're holding them for a while and you think that they're going to crush it in the way that I might think about a company or, or you might think about a company, it's a very different thing. And it's not just like, let's glance over it and say we're worried about bias. Because this company's data, 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 yeah. data, 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 data. And we talked about that's the next currency. It's a, it's a huge deal. Yeah, you talked about this as like the picks and shovels of genomics, right? And so I know... You're about to go to work here, digging in a lot more. But remind us what, first of all, what picks and shovels means, because there's a lot of new listeners every single week. But why is that important to like genomics, right? Genomics is one of those unique spaces that still is high in the sky to a lot of you know folks on the street. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing to, to note here about picks and shovels is that, like you were saying this earlier, and, and it almost made no sense, but it made Avi resmart. That's what sense. I do. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was it was good. And it's like the thing about it is that it, you can think of it as like, you know, like a REIT or like an ETF almost in a in a way like that. And that's like it's still an individual company and it'll just benefit from 20 or 30 or, you know, whatever, however many companies that partner with it. So you're getting a little bit of a benefit of the entire trend versus just like the risk you could have in like one company. Like, let's say you invest in one genomics company and their drug kills a thousand people, whatever, you know, you, you, there, there's a lot more risks okay. there. And so the risk in itself is is lessened in that degree, right? Because it, it's not like focused on one partnership. It's not just focused on one, you know, deal with the drug to make this one thing for a disease. It's the platform to which everyone can come and learn something from and take away and improve their own companies and their own health systems and hospitals and everything from. So Picks and shovels to me are like that lower risk in an entire sector. And it just is, it's crucial to know the difference between that and a company that has like that individual bio risk. Like that, that is a risk. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm saying that it's being mischaracterized in a lot of companies. They're going to make 260 this year. They're making moves. It's pretty clear there's a lot happening, especially when we talk about SPACs. Everyone's saying SPACs are dead. However, Tony's coming with the zig when people zag. You're saying there's a lot of movement under the hood. Yeah, I think news, news, news since the merger announcement has just been insane to me. So I always talk about like, like when you see positive news, right? Because positive news begets positive news and negative news begets negative news for whatever kind of news you're looking at, right? Like it becomes a cycle and you'll see that a narrative kind of continues 
continues either direction it's going until it changes right so right now the narrative for cmlf is just i i love it like, i love seeing things happen that are not in the guidance so they reaffirmed the guidance from the slides for this year right so the concerns about people saying oh they're not going to hit their revenue targets like the slides are all bs for every spec right that's a blanket statement people are throwing out that's that's crap because if, if this thing was a normal ipo you'd be feeling differently and so the fact that you can't oversee that and you can't look past that and you'll make the wrong decision because you're oversighted in that, like it's, it's not what you should be doing. So they're going to be doing the transaction finalization before the end of July. So I think I was saying, you know, the mentality with a D SPAC, right? So I think when a SPAC changes its ticker symbol, becomes the company, and then it trades fully off its own fundamentals and valuations, the ones who are trading at a stupid discount will have a run because then you'll see like SEMA 4 announces quarter two 2021 earnings and then you'll see and then people will say okay it's trading at x and x this and that we know for a fact it's real even though they told you it's real and like they legally can't lie to you like that so either way that's one thing they've had a bunch of new announcements and partnerships right so north shore university health system partnership where they have access to semaphore's industry leading information rich genomic solutions for hereditary cancer cardiovascular diseases and uh, pharmacogenomics we'll talk about that in a second and a bunch of rare diseases and i, I know obviously had, <laughs> had just spun around in a circle i'll know, explain it to you saying, i got some good, good. analogies because i really just want to show you guys how i dig into a company and like you know, I think it's an important time now when things are at a good valuation, things have come down a lot and they're reasonable, right? People are deciding what they want to hold for the next rally up. And so this is the process that I go through. I just spent like 12 hours digging through this again after already spending so many hours, right? So this is kind of the picture that I've pieced together because of all that research. They've also partnered with Advent Health, which is huge. Obviously, a lot of people have heard of that, I'm sure. So that collaboration is going to start in their facilities in Central Florida. It's going to cover more than 20 hospitals and 2 million annual patient visits. But that's to start because Advent has over 5 million patients nationally, 50 hospitals, hundreds of case sites. So it's a very big company, right? So they're, they're not just partnering with this small dinky thing in some random like city in Florida or whatever. They're making moves with these huge national healthcare insurers. So that's a big move for them. And they said that they'd be doing that and they're doing it quickly, right? Two in the last month. And this is not even factored into their projections, right? Because their slides were their projections as of that time without this new news. Um, and so another cool thing that they're doing is they, this Mount Sinai health system, which is where SEMA 4 came out of Mount Sinai. And they're broadening the collaboration with that, which is going to add another million patients there. So they're literally just piling on people to get money from and to better their lives and their outcomes for their health solutions. Riley, I see you like going yeah. nuts over there. What's going on? Yeah. So, you know, for all you ARC fanboys out there, over the last few days, we've been seeing Kathy slam some CMLF and CMIIU. And for me, it feels like she can start to do some rebalancing in ARCG from uh, NVTA to CMLF, which are, you know, very close comps. And as a lot cheaper to me, at least from an uh, investor standpoint, has a lot more upside, in my opinion. So she bought 332000 of CMLF the other day on the 26th and about 30,000, which was split between the commons and the warrants on the 27th. So uh, I just love this play and she's just been adding CMLF slowly. And I think that over the next few weeks, she's gonna continue to add to it. Not to mention, this is going into the genomics ETF. Let me, let me just say, say that again, genomics ETF. <laughs> this is not a genomics play. This is a data play, just so you guys all know. Absolutely. I mean, genomics is definitely probably one of the most risky places I see, you know, in terms of sectors and, and, and niche markets, right? Because it's not huge yet. It seems huge because a lot of companies are now coming into the public markets because the science is advancing to the point where it's necessary, right? They need that funding publicly to advance quicker because it's all just about how much money you have and how much money you can put to work. 
But I think a lot of the risks that come with the individual medicine producing, you know, those with the actual solutions in terms of like, they're the ones cutting into you and doing stuff, or they're the ones altering your genome in that way. Those are the ones that possibly have the risks more so than the pure data play that's going to benefit from all of these, right? And I think a lot of people say like, I don't talk about the risks. I'm like, I always, I always talk about risks, but a lot of the companies I go into, there's not as many risks as, you know, as the other ones that I think a lot of people are looking into. So SEMA4, for example, is one of those companies that I see that there's like a huge, huge market that's barely being broken into. And there's only a few competitors that I think are even in the, in the wheelhouse for being the best, right? But I don't, I don't think it's going to be a zero sum game. I think that there's going to be a lot of different companies that do this and you'll see mergers and acquisitions and stuff happen over the next coming decade in this. And that's already been happening, right? Like a lot of these companies continuously buy people just to get larger. But I think it's a lot about the way that you do this and the way that you spend that money. So I think a lot of people just consider NVTA as the perfect comp for SEMA4, which I honestly would say it is. It's one of the like three or four perfect comps, but I think a lot of people think NVTA is the leader. I don't disagree right now. Yeah, they have more data sets. They have more everything. I think it's a lot about how the company operates, especially when it's in a riskier field, right? So at that point, you need to be paying attention to the way that your balance sheet looks. You need to be paying attention to, are you going to be able to keep doing the research and development and all the things, that you, expansions, acquisitions that you want to be doing? And that, that obviously comes at a cost, right? So either you already are, you know, you're smart enough and you, and you figure out you have the money to do this and you do it over time, or you dilute and you dilute and dilute. So before I go into that, I kind of want to talk about this uh, tweet that Plant Math had. I think it's great about NVTA and it's something to talk about. So yeah, we have a very fragmented medical health industry. It's just the facts. It's a lot of moving pieces that are going to eventually become more and more cohesive and they're going to reduce costs and allow you to do more. So I want to talk about this tweet that Plant Math One had. It's fantastic. Honestly, made me think about this little segment of the show. He goes, since IPO, NVTA shares are up 60%, but the enterprise value is up over 1100%. So endless dilution. And so that was what I was talking about, the way that you get money, the way that you spend money and at what cost. So I think CMA4 is in a fantastic, CMLF is in a fantastic position in terms of their cash on their balance sheet, right? They have 500 million and NVTA just continues to dilute. They just had $434 million raise back in January, right? So that was a dilution. They sold 9 million shares. And that was for them to acquire something that provides AI insights, microbiome, and infectious disease tests, and oncology, which SEMA4 already does with Traversa and Centralis to no additional cost, still having that $500 million to strategically do something with, right? And if you leave all else equal, SEMA4 is going to be profitable a hell of a long time earlier than NVTA is. In 2025, we can't even see if NVTA is going to be profitable. By 2023, CMA4 will be profitable and growing with margins that are improving every year. So that's obviously the first thing to understand in terms of an investor standpoint is valuations. There's important, especially mm -hmm. in a risky area. If you're being the data play versus like, you know, CRISPR, twist, edit, it's harder to put a valuation on those because once again, you don't know how much you can pay if that's the treatment that saves your life. But this is more, you know, this is tech. This is a data play that you can pay for this. There's a way to do it with like software as a service modeling. Like you can figure out the comps on this because over time you'll see it become the exact company it wants to be. Uh, one, one important thing to talk about with NVTA here is that they only had 259,000 in their billable volume in terms of like testing. And so that was a 72% increase year over year, but the numbers aren't insane for the difference between where they're at and where CMLF is at, especially with all these new partnerships and where they were going with that in a quick time. And also looking at their net loss for their first quarter of 2021 is $109 million, And their net revenue was about $103 million. So to me, if you look over here and say, well, they're spending more than they make, 
and they're deep in this that they alluded so many times from a share perspective it's a less enticing investment even though the company is great i just think that they are going to continue to dilute that's just their mo sure they're buying new companies that are going to eventually add to their revenue but we're not seeing that improve their margins at all right now whereas cmlf we have a clear concise viewpoint to how they get to being greatly profitable and have that sustainability over time it's amazing that you're genuinely kind of the table like physically and metaphorically but like we always look at these companies in genomics and EVs and where the ball is going, right? But like, let's just focus on now. What do they do today? And like, why should we as humans use them? Yeah, I mean, this is what I really wanted to touch on. I feel like you could kind of go into a company from like a bird's eye view, but I've actually heard some of my friends started using SEMA4 for getting their tests done. And they're offering a so many comprehensive and niche tests as well. Like it's very, very interesting to see that we should all be doing it. And I, I'm literally going to be doing it in the next week or two, because I think it's that important just to know, like, don't you just want to know like where, how you're going to be healthy in the next 10, 20 years, or if you're not going to be, wouldn't you really want to know? So they offer a whole genome and exome sequencing uh, and that they offer that custom report for you about potential treatment targets and clinical trials from that information. So within that, they have a bunch of different tests to help do that. I think it's very important, like they're focusing on the exome, right? That has to do with RNA and proteins. And, and that's the biggest part that eventually like genomics will turn into proteomics and more exome based things that people will be looking at. So they're already in the right space doing the right things. That's why they have Traversa. That's their other platform that kind of goes with Centralis. So Centralis is like that AI data bank black box and Traversa is like an offset of that for oncology and exome based things. So that's very interesting to me. And I think that because of that, they're able to get so many different tests, partner with a lot of people to do these tests, to test you for everything and kind of figure out where your health is going to be in 5, 10, 20, 50 years. We were talking about this several podcasts ago here with Walter DeBrower. He was from ShareCare and he was talking about how this whole customized healthcare, like you go to this doctor, but like, why doesn't the doctor come to you and understand you as an individual? And, and we've talked about this in the past with like the toilets that are going to read back your vitals to you months and months ago. And lo and behold, these things are now live. So like, this is happening. This is like people are so crazy with genomics. And I had a crazy story. I, I took this Leviquin pill, which is an antibiotic. And like, I had an adverse reaction that happens to like maybe two to 3% of people. But that's a lot of people, right? And, and that's crazy. And so if I had the ability to not, not feel my legs for like literally two to three months, that would be important to me, right? And if I knew that I was allergic to this specific drug or other people are allergic to a specific drug, all of us are so unique as individuals. Yeah, it's about your health, right? Health is wealth. And like, you can only be so happy as you can be alive. So it's important. And like your problem with Leviquin probably would not have happened had you used Natalis, which is their first offering. So it's a highly accurate test that analyzes your baby's DNA for more than 190 conditions that's going to affect children before the age of 10, right? So it's difficult to know what your kid has a problem with, right? Because they don't show symptoms usually until they're older and you can give them drugs that can cause things like that. And they wouldn't even know because they've never been tested until they get too old. And sometimes it's too late, right? So I had that experience myself. Like I had amoxicillin uh, when I was younger. I think it's like an antibiotic or something, but I'm allergic as hell to it. And I will literally die if I take it again because they had to give me EpiPens and all this flush and all that. And I was very young and they obviously didn't know because they couldn't test me, but now you can know, right? Now you can know. So Natalis, it's gonna include a standard analysis and that's the expected response of more than 40 standard medications that are prescribed in child including antibiotics. So that would have been helpful for me and you, honestly. And you would have been able to take that data that you got when you were a kid and know, hey, I'm 30 now, I can't take Leviquin or I will literally 
absolutely lose feeling in my legs. That, Crazy. what would you pay, right? And here's the cool thing. You only got to pay $379. Oh, and let's make it even more interesting and less friction because that's the way to get people involved in something that's very like skeptical in their minds is less friction. So for only $379, you can get this test. But, you know, something important to note is that regardless of your financial situation, their billing specialist can help you provide a payment option that works for you and your family. So if the test will cost you more than $99, a SEMA4 billing specialist will contact you to discuss your options. And also, I want you to note that Invitate does not accept insurance for proactive screening or pre-implementation genetic testing. And they say, as these tests are rarely covered by insurance. Well, clearly by someone else now. So that's something to note. And that's important because, you know, if it's $500 or $1,000, maybe a lot of the people who need it won't be able to get it. But if you know that it's covered by a lot of the partners that they have, those partners insurances, it's covered in a lot of those places, almost all of them. And they'll work with you. So it's very important because they're trying to reduce that friction and getting people tested and getting people involved in the conversation about your longevity and your health. So one in four children to one in 50 children, depending on your age, subset, group, all that, that's going to be the number of people that are expected to screen positive from the Natalis test. So if you know that your odds are either 25% or, you know, 0.6637, whatever, 667% in that, like that's still, right? If you had a less than 1% chance of knowing what can affect you because you have less, you know, things that can impact your health that we can say, hey, this may give you this or this might cause that, you'd still do it, right? For 99 bucks or honestly free if you have the right insurance. And most babies appear with these conditions healthy at first. You would never know it. And by the time they're close to diagnosable, you'll know it for sure, right? My case with amoxicillin. And this comes with everything too. Everything yeah. else you're talking about. I mean, that, that, that to me is like, I just keep going back to like, for one easy payment of three seventy nine. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. absurd. $99 like, or less. $99, $99 to ensure your kid is safe. Like that, that's absurd. So like, let's get into some of the like use cases today. If I go up, ask a hundred people on the street, there's zero chance that like more than one or two people have ever heard of this. So who's using this? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really cool because they just kind of started doing this newborn screening recently. So that's their Nihilus platform. And they're crushing with that. Obviously people want that for 99 bucks. Like I'm sure parents would pay a lot more for the kids and they'll pay for themselves. So that's an easy bucket. Non-invasive prenatal select. That's another thing, right? So this is for that one we just talked about was for when you're born, right? Like let's say that you didn't have semen four when you were in the womb, but you can get it figured out while you're in the womb if you're there early. So it's a simple blood test that can detect chromosomal abnormalities as early as nine weeks into pregnancy, right? Like you're the size half of a lima bean and they can tell you what's going to be wrong with you in the future. So that's kind of important. So it detects most chromosomal abnormalities with over 99% accuracy. That's huge. Results are in a week and that's a big deal, right? Because the difficulty here is like you want to have that information right away. And what's cool is that you'll now have that information forever and you can track it with your health every day. Seema 4 has the expanded carrier screen. So that's a comprehensive carrier test. And that screens for more than 280 genetic diseases, which I'm sure like if you have a problem, that's going to cover most of them. Also with 99% accurate sequencing. So they're not messing you up. They're not messing up the data there. 99% plus, the P is low, reject the hoe. That's literally, I learned that in sixth grade. Right. So it's cool though, because Avi, you have, you fall into a subset, right? You have Jewish genes, right? So that's 101 genes that are associated with Jewish founder mutations. And so they have the Jewish ancestry test that you can literally test yourself and know like, Hey, these are all things that I'm probably susceptible because of my gene pool. 
Let's figure out what I can get affected by in my future. So that they literally will, that's included within the, the broad carrier screening. You can even go deeper and deeper. As far as testing just one single gene that you could potentially have a disease from that one gene that maybe you have breast cancer or whatever it is in your family, you'll be able to test for just that thing that you're worried about, which is good because like some people don't want to know everything that's going on, but Hey, if there's something that you need to get checked out, at least you know that you can check. I, I feel like that's like, it's such a crazy concept. I just want to pause for a second. The best way if you're sick to know in advance, like I know there's that psychological barrier of like, yeah, I don't want to know, but like, if you know, then you can, get treatment for that. If you know your weakness, you can turn it into a strength. And what's cool too, is they do so many other testing within this test, right? So they go as far as molecular and biochemical diagnostic testings for all the genes in the carrier screening panel. So they're running so many pieces of data off of your one sample, which is actually shipped to you. And there's a two week turnaround time, right? So Avi, once again, $99 max, you can go online right now, get it shipped to your door, room temp, it's fine. Figure it out, swab yourself. It's not crazy. Just put it in your mouth and then <laughs> send it back to them. Seriously, that's it. And then you'll know, like, hey, I am susceptible to this. I can stop drinking McAllen or whatever it is that you have problems with. That is what I'm drinking right now. Let's just be upfront. Fuck cancer. So they're focusing a lot on oncology recently and more and more in the next coming years. Like that's part of their mission statement to make a big dent in that area. So they're traverse a genomic platform. They do this with comprehensive molecular profiling and they help you identify what therapies and like maybe these clinical trials that you don't know exist could be good for you today. Right. So you could be in a situation where you think you have a terminal illness or where you think you something that you're not going to be able to recover from because the treatment's not available. Well, like the treatment might be available. You might just not know about it. And semen four is the reason why you might be able to get access to that treatment by knowing what is wrong with your genome. Tony, I, I just want to like pause for a second because this is something that made me cry. Like actually, and I don't yeah, really same. cry ever. But we had a pounder that came to us and said, because Tony was pounding so hard on genomics that he was able to help his mother who had terminal cancer at the time really hit home for like why we talk about this because yeah. it's, it's actually real. It's phenomenal. If you're able to know like that there is this trial randomly that can potentially save your life, right? Like you have no other choices. You would take that chance, but you wouldn't know it unless you knew that you had the potential to take that thing. Like you wouldn't even be able to say yes or no without getting tested in the most recent and advanced way that you can. And so that's why it matters, right? Because there are people that will die just because they don't take these tests. And that fucking pisses me off. Like, mm. that, honestly, like, I don't care. Like, it's I true. It's, it's, it's like, if you can do something, right? Like, if you can just take this $99 thing, I'm sure it's covered by your insurance. I, I encourage people to do it because you don't know and I don't want people to find out too late. And that's the reason why, like, I think it's like for 99 bucks, knowing what could kill you and knowing what can save you is that's the thing you will know what can save you or what can potentially be out there now and like let's say that tomorrow right like you're in a three-month period wherever like this is the worst and you have six months to live what if in three months there's another trial that's starting that could potentially save you you will take that chance because i would take that chance i think everyone would take that chance at some point and if somebody you love tells you to take that chance you'll probably take that chance anyway so figure out what's wrong with you so you can know what you can even do about it so that's huge. And that's why they're focusing a lot on oncology too, because a lot of genetics is used to figure out the genes that have to do with cancer, you know, women's health, breast cancer, stuff like that. That's important, right? Those are primarily where we hear about genetics these days. So this Traversa platform, I love having it next to Centralis, right? So there are two things that focus on different parts of the, the whole company, right? And it's just going to be basically a data powerhouse 
to try to prevent and save your life. And that's like, that's the thing that matters so much because I've seen it happen to somebody just because I pounded the table on genomics and I want people to understand it just for their own selves and improve their lives by saying that you should probably get this test. You should probably go figure out what your health is and what it will be. So you can live longer and have like health is wealth mentality. It's important. So Tony, I'm going to stop you there for a second. Obviously, this is this is key for, you know, even just extending out our life quite a bit and just being healthy. Now, from an investor standpoint, what are some really important things to know about before? Yeah. So one thing I think people consider it as like just a single test and then you're done. No, like patients can literally track their test, view results, access educational materials through the SEMA4 patient portal all the time. So you'll always know, right? Like you go to one hospital, you go to another, you'll be able to transfer your information and it's like way more cohesive and put together and in depth and meticulous than any other thing you're going to be getting. Because like if you transfer right now to a hospital, another hospital, there's very little communication, right? Like you have your medical records, this and that, but not every doctor reads every single chart that you have, right? It'd be nice to have a robot do it for you because a robot's going to do way better than somebody who spent eight years in med school anyway. That's just because it's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of more hours in that and way more intelligence with AI and all that. So that's a huge thing. And also knowing that they just built a second 70,000 square foot lab to expand their genetic testing and insight capabilities. That's important, right? Because they're scaling up and- People are like, how much money did that spend? Well, they finished that and they still have 450 million plus on the balance sheet ready to go do something else cool with it. So knowing that they have that much money on hand and seeing what NVTA does, right? So they dilute and then they acquire. SEMA4 didn't dilute and now they have cash to acquire. So it's like three steps forward, right? Versus the other competitor, in my opinion, right? Like I still, I'm not saying I hate NVTA. I just want you to point out as an investment perspective, like I, I picked the other horse. So with that $500 million, they've already told you, and they're mentioning that they want to acquire someone soon. This is reverse dilution because you already have that cash and that cash will turn into a company that produces more revenues. So whatever their projections are, are not what their projections are going to be because they're going to add another company that adds onto that revenue. So instead of having it be dilutive, it's adding to the, it's the same market cap adding to their revenue base, right? So that's a quarter right now of 20% of their market cap, that's going to start producing revenue versus just sitting as cash. That's a huge thing. And they talk about like a rival uh, data science company here. They're talking about mold DX lab. There's, they literally have a slide that says like, Hey, we're going to be targeting these guys first. And then these guys later. And there's like 13 different companies on there. So they're not expecting to just be what they are now. They're expecting to be them plus 13 other companies that had the same vision. It's got to be marketing. As much as they want to continue to expand the revenue streams, I mean, yeah, they could probably do it with 200, 300 million. But I think the big focus that they're going to do is marketing. You got to be able to market, you know, like you said before, you maybe one, two, three people on a street out of out of 100 will know SEMA 4. Well, with 100, 200 million in, in marketing spending, you could be upping that to, you know, 20, 30 people potentially. And like we just been saying, it could end up saving lives. So I think that's a huge thing to be able to market to the people who don't know about SEMA 4. Yeah. And Riley, I definitely agree with that. Just to add on that a little bit, because it's not just about straight up their marketing to the individual consumer. Like that'll definitely get people into their system, into their entire network. That's important. But they already have just insane contracts with like all the national major payers, right? Including, but not limited to, right? Aetna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Cigna, Humana, right? United Healthcare. So they're getting, you know, into the pockets of the direct consumer, right? Those people who will benefit from not having to spend more money on their patients. So those health insurance, right? Like the cost to them is what their patients rack up. So if you can reduce the cost to the health industry, right, they will be happy to push that on every single person that they can if they see that it works, which it does. 
So that's an important thing too. So I think that getting the word out to individual people just so they can know that they want to sign up to it, but also just continuing to get into these big, big boys, right? Like these huge guys who cover millions and millions of people across the country. That is just the way to get to everyone that you can. I think a lot of people think it's a zero sum game, but when you see SEMA 4, you know, even in 2017, working with Illumina, which is Illumina's Helix platform. So that's an online marketplace for DNA powered products. You're seeing that NVTA is suing NTRA, Natera, which is another competitor. And at the same time, NTRA is working with SEMA 4 to do some of their partnership tests for this non-invasive prenatal testing. So it's a different approach, right? They want more and more people to work with them because the more data you have, the better. So I think that's a huge thing. Another thing I want to focus on is this pharmacogenetics, which basically just means a study of how people respond to different drug therapies and everything. So because of their genes. And so that's going to help a lot with FDA approval for different drugs, right? Because SEMA4 is going to be getting into working with the manufacturers and helping develop drugs for the future. So they're going to be doing early clinical trials. It's going to lead to reduced trial duration, minimum dose finding and escalation, and better patient selectivity, right? Because you can run a trial, but unless you have it with the most perfect data set, it's less valid and less reliable, right? So that's a huge improvement, and which will definitely reduce time to getting the trial done, to getting that drug out to people and ultimately saving lives. So today, where it is and where is it's going, right? Like, I think a lot of people look at these presentations and say they're not real, but they already came out, they reaffirmed guidance. And I think it's kind of hilarious to kind of look at what they've just recently done and the number of people that they've added, right? So Advent Health, right? That's 5 million total people. You've got the Mount Sinai Expanded Partnership, another million people. North Shore, 300,000 people. So call it like 6 million, 5 million, whatever you want. But on their slide, they're saying like, yeah, they want 2021 to have 14 million patients and four networks. So they added two more networks just now with North Shore and Advent Health. And they've added basically in the next two or three years, they're going to be adding 6 million people pretty much. So they're already beating those expectations of where they think they're going to be. And I think it's funny for people to say, well, I don't love that the fact that they're all on uh, this women's testing, like that's their biggest shtick. And sure it is. And it's going to be growing at 16% for the next few years. But think about it. If you were a company, right? You do one thing, you offer the service, you continue to offer it, and you do a damn good job at it. But then you add the other legs, right? Oncology is going to grow 164% in the next till 2023. That's the CAGR from 2020. Pharma partnerships, 129%. Secondary data insights, which is literally just Centrella saying, this is what I think, this is what I think, whatever. That's 257% growth. And women's health, yes, 16%, but that's because they're looking to change those margins to make it a better investment for you. Health systems, so that's partnerships, low margin, of course, right? Because it's just software as a service, it's just insights, 214% CAGR. So that's huge. And I don't think people realize that when you look at those slides, like really try to understand what they're going to be doing with that. So you can see that these repeat insights, which is customers doing it again and again and again, that's going to start at 1% and go to 4% in just two years. And so that doesn't sound like a lot, but you're seeing that there's stickiness to it that they're predicting. And it's going to obviously happen because they have these deep long-term partnerships with these big beasts. Their margins are going to go from 32% this year to 54% in 2023. And if they went to that in just two years of adding these new legs, when those legs become bigger and bigger each year, right? And those all have better margins in the women's health direct testing. They're not going to stop at 54% margins. They'll be going to 60, 70% margins, which is the highest in the category next to Natera. That's important to understand. So I think people are just looking at it too one-sided. You have to really dig in and understand. Like OPEX is going to go from 69 to 61%. It'll eventually go lower and lower. And to predict that they're only going to do 504 million in 2023 when they just added so many people, right? They're thinking 30 million patients in three years. They're pretty much at 20 now. So that's a huge upstart lead. 
and they were thinking eight systems and they have six. But that's huge. Like they're making moves all the time. And I don't think people are really understanding it that these guys that they're making moves with will move as fast as they want to move with SEMA4. As fast as SEMA4 moves, they'll implement that to all their patients because these are some of the most progressive networks in terms of health. They want that. They have plans to get all of Florida genomically mapped. Like they want these things to happen. So the way I want to just wrap this up is by saying, this is like the least friction genomic data picks and shovels play that I can think of. And I think it's silly to not think the entire sector is going to do better over time when you're seeing so much growth and no SPACs are not dead, right? Like once again, it's a vehicle. It's the company that comes out of it that it really matters, right? Like if you're just Easter egg hunting, you don't care about what egg you find. You care about what's inside the egg. So have some longevity and wait till you open the egg. And when you really see what's inside the egg, then you'll know what you want. Uh, we can see that Tony's pretty apathetic when it comes to CMLO. Super apathetic. I hate it. So chill. He doesn't care at all about that company or genomics whatsoever. So let's just quickly uh, switch gears here. So Tony, thank you for that. So as we discussed, not a lot of people know about CMLF, CMA4, right? Genomics is a whole space of what's coming. However, there are some companies that everyone knows and loves, such as Airbnb that we want to get into. And our little sidekick here, Riley, wants to kick things off. Yeah, so I just, I love the ability for the optionality that Airbnb has. They're not just going to be a uh, stay, you know, vacation only company. And uh, I actually read something really interesting the other day on Reddit. So this guy goes in and tries to kind of let you know about his vision. And so it starts out saying, you want to take a vacation uh, from the U.S. to Paris for a week with your significant other. You request the time off at work and hop on your go-to service for going somewhere that you don't live, Airbnb. You book your flight on Airbnb Airlines. You get free checked bags, early seat choice, and a discount on ticket price because you're part of the Airbnb membership program. You, ar- you arrive at the airport in Paris, turn on your uh, phone back on. Airbnb recognizes that you've landed and schedules your ride sharing to the cool apartment that you've booked for the week. You collect your luggage and head to the car. Once inside, you decide that you're feeling a little tired from the trip. You open up the Airbnb app and pre-order a bottle of red wine and a nice dinner, which is waiting for you at the door when you're dropped off. You eat dinner, open up the app once more to book a a bike tour of the city for the next day and get a great night's sleep after a hassle-free day of travel thanks to Airbnb. So this is Amazon life. Essentially, I mean, it it seems like they're trying to maybe build a super app. I think that overall that they can honestly take care of you from the moment that you essentially are deciding, hey, I want to go on vacation to the moment that you're essentially coming back. So anything from flights, ride sharing, drinks, food, goods, whatever it is, deliver it to your door through strategic partnerships. Something very interesting. You forgot your toothbrush. Oh, Airbnb has someone at your door within an hour with a toothbrush. Want some wine, dinner waiting for you, whatever it is, boom, done. Airbnb can do it. So is this going back to this Amazon concept, right? Like, are they trying to do too much? Would it be better for them to like partner with Uber, let's say, to Uber Eats to like get them the food? Like, why not just partner? Yeah, so I think that overall, just being able to partner with a lot of these people, I hope that they do not actually do the airline thing. Now they there's a lot of chatter with them potentially doing this and the method that they would be trying to do it would be called wet leasing, which is essentially a short-term lease on planes. So they wouldn't need to cough up like an absurd amount of capital to basically start a new airline leg. 
they would not necessarily see the same like startup costs, which is going to be billions of dollars. Now, yes, they do have $3.5 billion cash on hand, which is quite a bit, but I really do not want them to do that. Tony, what, what's going on? Why are you freaking out over there? Dude, a subscription business should never get into a capital intensive business that's backwards. You know, I think one thing that they could do is like buy Yelp or, you know, partner with Spirit or partner with Delta or whoever it is and like give 5% off if you fly with Delta, right? Like incentivize people to use those services. The second you start providing all the services yourself, you become really, really sticky and you don't want to be sticky in that way. You know, it's harder to move. You want to be agile, flow like water because the best companies do that. And I think if you don't do that, like, you know, buy Yelp instead of making all this crap yourself, right? Like buy open table. Tony just stole your thunder a little bit here talking about no, Yelp. It's like, fine. I think that's the better, that's the better acquisition for me. Personally. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so just, just looking at the numbers, Yelp's valued at $3 billion. And for me, knowing that they have $3.5 billion uh, cash on hand, it's simple. You know, you wave a $500 million premium in front of them, give them $3.5 billion. Shareholders are going to jump at that. So if they wanted to get a deal done, I know that they would get it done and it would be an all cash deal. No need to, to give up any shares, nothing like that. You could use all the cash that you have. And with this, you essentially could probably put the Yelp app inside of the Airbnb app and almost create a mini, not a super app. I mean, you could kind of call it that. But the way that I would kind of look at it is being able to not only book your future stay, whatever it is, but being able to book, you know, tonight's restaurant, whatever it is at your own home. Right. And I think that's kind of where Airbnb, at least I just finally started my position in Airbnb because this is beyond just staying at someone's house, especially if they were to acquire Yelp, for instance. You have so much data on what people care about in local environments. Yeah. So I think the thing that Airbnb can definitely work on is the experience part. And so they've tried to kind of scale it up a little bit. And I think that if they can incorporate an Amazon Prime type model with a membership that, you know, you can get discounts. And like when you stay, you can actually kind of get some money off of these experiences. They would entice these users to actually do it, you know? So I, I've used Airbnb. Most people have used Airbnb. And for me, I feel like a, being a college student, being in, in the 20s, I feel like you don't really want to cough up that much if a lot of these things can, you know, you kind of finesse your way around them for cheaper. But if Airbnb can do it a little bit cheaper than what they have been, I think you're going to get a lot more users to be able to go out there and actually put the money out and use Airbnb's system, which then obviously will get Airbnb money. One of the ideas that we kind of discussed a little bit was being able to partner with some of the hotels and retrofit, retrofit some of these rooms and make them more upscale, you know, charge a little bit higher price, you're going to help the hotels out by having them take care of the cleaning and they collect the cleaning fee while Airbnb takes the other fee. So mm -hmm. I think that overall, they could kind of partner with each other. And all these hotels, I know they're scared of Airbnb. They have to be. I mean, that's where the yeah. future is going. But being able to, you know, partner with Airbnb can give them, you know, that extra sense of, all right, we can actually make it through this and we can actually thrive potentially by using Airbnb. It's it's kind of like we were talking about before, like at the first episode with SPG, right? Like people have a different view of the world, right? We have a gig economy. We People are more fluid, right? Like maybe people don't buy homes as much, you know, like the younger crowd is not as least, like they don't have as many savings. So it's a more nomadic and global lifestyle. I think a lot of people my age and younger are living and, you know, even a little older up to your age, Avi, but you know, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the truth. Like if you can get all of it in one place, right? Like they should buy Yelp and they should get open table with all that. I think those are really important things that they should be able to do because it'll just like make it seamless. Right. So 
It's like if you go to a hotel, like an upscale hotel, you have room service, you have this and that. You, you go to a cruise ship, right? This is actually the perfect example. You go on a cruise ship and everything's already made for you, right? You know when your food's going to come. You get The second you get to the port, it's over. Like you're, you, nothing is, you have all your needs met until you get back, right? You have excursions that, that are already pre-planned and pre-booked on the cruise, right? And that's because they have thousands and thousands of people coming and they build those things out for those people, right? So if you get something like Yelp, and then you'll be able to not only like, I think it's one of those things where you can acquire something and make it way better than it is right now, right? It's not the best on its own, but you have so much infinite data from Airbnb, right? You can give them points for writing Yelp reviews on places. And then you can use that data to figure out, hey, well, like not many people are visiting Wisconsin right now. Let's drop the rates and add some promos for Wisconsin, right? And the cool thing is that like Airbnb, I think it was like 91 or 90% of the traffic didn't require, you know, people to be advertising. They didn't require Airbnb to be advertising during the pandemic. So that amount of traffic was still there, right? People always have an interest to travel. It's called wanderlust. It always happens. And so people want to go places and want to do things, but the difficulty of traveling, right? Like I hate having to, you know, get out of my plane, call an Uber, do this, go there, find the keys, this, that, like all this crap. And if they can make it more seamless, and they can cut out the middleman and make more money by everything being that like subscription partnership service. That's the way that they win in the future. I think that's where they're going, right? Because like these normal hotels, these standard things are not as enticing to people like me, for instance. Like I would, I always go on Airbnb. Like I rarely like to stay in hotels just because like you want to have that work from home feel versus like, you know, you're in a hotel, all the rooms are the same. It's the standard layout, this and that. You don't have amenities. You still have to order and it comes to you. You have to go downstairs in your robe and go pick up your pizza. Like Airbnb makes it a lot more easy. And like, it, that's why people like to use it all the time. That's why it's growing so fast. Want to know too, that like it was supposed to open at 68, right? So it coming from 200 down to 120 is not anything more than a normal price discovery. Because of course, since it didn't go through a SPAC, because it's it could have gone through a couple, but like it didn't go through a spec. It went normally on the market price at 68 opens in 120, 150 area. That's a big deal, right? So it shows you that these valuations that come out of traditional IPO stick more. And that's just because people are more used to it. Right. And people are more used to hotels now, but that changes. Everything yeah. does. I come from that corporate world and I've seen a lot of my colleagues start transitioning and, and saying, Hey, you know what? I want a space to work. I want to actually, and this is a big thing that, that Chesky was talking about too, was that this is no longer just like people just traveling as promised. We got to get into a little bit of questions from the audience. You know, we promised upfront that we would talk about some of the previous stocks and SPACs that we've talked about. So CCIV. CCIV is the one that marked the SPAC top to people obviously ran insanely and people, you know, I, you had the thought that it was going to just like run forever. Right. And that's the point, right? Like the people were bidding it up at 4am in Germany and people were dropping 50 K purchase blocks. So, right. There was so much enticement and so much hype around it, but I'll tell you what, like they're making all the right moves. They're doing really, really well in my opinion, in terms of like their marketing, because like Tesla, like I think it's a little different, right? Like they didn't have to necessarily market as much because it was so new. Like I think, that if you were in it, you were going to be in it, whether or not it was like marketed, right? But now there's so much competition that you have to be differentiated. And so I think that a lot of people are like, oh, it's a zero sum game. Only Tesla will win. And like, I'll tell you, like I was in Tesla before almost everybody. And I did know that it was like, they're the only ones around. They were the ones that were going to be the ones that are we're talking about now and comparing people to because they've done it for the longest time and they've done the best job at it. But it is all about your tech. And I think the Lucid's tech is great. I think that I've seen, I've watched every single video, every interview and everything I could possibly find about it. And I, my only thing is that they need to just start delivering. And mm -hmm. so 
Rawlinson, you know, I, I don't like that they pushed it back the first time. And we've talked about that already. And it's okay. Second half of 21, fine. It better be the second half of 21. And it better be early in the second half of 2021. But I will say, like, just looking and saying, like, hey, they have those deliveries, right? They have that number. It's at least 10,000 plus. I don't know the actual number because they wouldn't release it. But it was 7,500 at the time of the presentation. And a lot has happened. A lot of hype had happened since then. So I'm sure more people signed up for it. But it's not the same market, in my opinion, as Tesla, right? Like, I think of it more like a Mercedes, right? Like, or like a, a Bentley or something yeah, like that. Like, people, it's a luxury car. And it's it's like, you know, it doesn't have to be the fastest, even though it's damn fast. It's like 2.5 seconds and 0 to 60 versus Tesla's 1.99. Like, is 0.5 going to matter? No, it's like you want it for the comfort. And the reason it's, like, built like a tank is, is, is that comfort feeling, right? The cabin's huge on the inside. You've got all the efficiencies that you need, which allow you to have that space, right? They can shrink down the actual dimensions of what you need to build the car and give you more legroom, and more space. I like the user interference video, like interface video that they posted last week was damn cool. And I think that really suits well for those people. I think people miss the fact that they have 32 sensors also that they're going to be doing autonomous driving and such. And I don't think they were going to be getting the full self-driving legally on the road for a while in any car vehicle, right? So they're not behind in that regard. And also I think that that's a very niche car for now is that really expensive Lucid because they're not trying to be putting out a ton of cars. They're trying to put out perfect cars with perfect customer reviews, perfect safety ratings, perfect ratings of driving and everything. They mm. want to come out strong. And I think you have to because there's so many competitors. There's so many people trying to do this. So you have to differentiate yourself. And the best strategy, in my opinion, is the winning strategy, which was dropping a super expensive, very nice luxury car that gets your beat whack in the market. And people know, hey, like this company is going to be doing something great. And when it can get affordable, I'll be the one buying the Model 3. This is exactly what I did with Tesla because their marketing mm -hmm. strategy was perfect. It didn't need a ton of marketing, but Lucid now needs marketing. And so they've been crushing that, right? Like they post avidly on Twitter. They do a YouTube video showing you each of the people. They, they show you the factory in the inside, which is literally mostly robotics. It looks incredible. Like I, I think I have no qualms with the company besides the fact that people have that, you know, that trauma and that upsetness because it mm -hmm. was at 60, but like if it went from 10 to 20, once again, you would be happy. So right. understand like where the company is right now, like they're trading around 30 billion in sales. If they do what they're expected to 2.2 plus next year, a billion, they're not even trading at 15 times multiple. So I, I think that's important to understand. And they're going to be building a huge facility hundred miles above the biggest city in Saudi Arabia, because that's part of the deal. They will be selling way more than 10,000, 20,000 cars, in my opinion. And that factory, that phase one AMP, can already do 90,000 at current capacity. So I think that's mm -hmm. important to note, right? They're, it's a big deal because they're going to be growing that to 400,000 plus, right? They're going to be getting three more, four million square feet there. And that just is going to be happening with all the cash. They have almost 5 billion on hand, right? Yeah. I don't think they're going to be strapped for cash. They have the reservations. Lucid's out and about. Like they have inside EVs, that like popular YouTube channel. They're doing research on them. They're, they, I saw them driving the car and like it's getting closer because you're seeing them let people get behind like a lucid car and like get yeah. inside and see the drive. And when I, when I watch it, I mean, the thing is damn fast. It looks like a luxury vehicle. They have those back reclined seats that it's going to be huge it's in sexy. China, and Saudi Arabia, right? Like that's the a niche. Uh, you want to travel in luxury. Like, you know, like the Bentley has those similar series. That's a similar thing. The Rolls Royce, the Bentley, that's the thing that they're going for, but mm -hmm. you don't have to be that expensive because it costs a lot less. People ultimately will always pay for that luxury. You have to execute. You have to execute. That's the thing now with a lot of these companies, well, it's it's a question about execution, right? Yeah. And I think that's why I was like talking about CMLF saying like they are executing right now and people are overlooking them versus like, I get it. Lucid's valuation, this and that, but like understand the technology, right? Like there's not anything else comparable to the current technology that they have producing a car very soon. 
similar to Tesla's, in fact, better in efficiency. So that's important to me. And like, that's been EPA Tesla the 500 plus range. Like those things matter, right? Because mm -hmm. they prove that they can do that. And the technology, right? It's not actually even like loose open. Like they have a patented technology for the way that they cool batteries, not just like on the sides, they cool it the entire part. So you can have smaller batteries that work longer, work harder and are more efficient. So they mm -hmm. have the tech, right? And their motor is three times smaller than Tesla's. Like, I'm the biggest Tesla fanboy ever, right? I have a car, I have a sign, I have the, the hoodie, the sweater, the jacket, the mini car, I have it all. Love Tesla, I love Musk. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's always gonna be a zero sum game. It's A lot of these things won't be, right? The world's getting so much bigger, we're getting so much more population. People want different things, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, for instance, like let's say you don't like Musk, but you have a lot of money and you wanna buy an EV, you'd buy a Lucid. So it's not about like which one is gonna be the single best winner of everyone, because it's never gonna be that way. But do I think that like Lucid strategically placed in a good place to get like a partnership with Apple to mm -hmm. be a super big OEM manufacturer, which they're doing battery packs. They're doing all these things. They're following the blueprint and they're executing with some of the biggest backers by the Saudi public investment fund and by Churchill Capital, right? So they have all the means by which that they can super succeed and they just need to execute. And so as soon as the deliveries start coming, it won't be about like, does Lucid suck? Is it a fraud? It'll be more so about how many cars did you produce this quarter, which is exactly what Tesla was about. And when you started seeing the, the, the traction, literally and metaphorically, I didn't mean to make that a pun. When you start seeing the traction, you'll know, right? Like you'll know that that company is going to be doing what it does and what it needs to be doing to get a growth in their share price. So right now they're waiting and sees, right? Nanox needs the multi-source approval. I don't like a lot of the things that Ron did, but I also know it's super heavily shorted and the borrow cost was not there because there was no more shares to borrow the last two weeks and which is why I squeezed. So do I think that I want to wait a little bit to see what these companies do before like screaming to the moon like i think these things are going to be huge absolutely but like information changes right like nanox at ipo was a very very different story than it is now right because we had a year to see what it was going to do and it did not execute in the best way by any means right they're talking about these italy issues with their cathode ray tube productions like they're talking about like ron doing this and that selling part of his equity like sure that could be it's not even a lot like it could be a big deal or it could not be a big deal but i think that the fact that they got fda single source clearance moves it moves it in a step in the right direction mm -hmm. as well as like lucid and cciv like they are starting to do more and more videos like they're close and if you listen to the people who are talking they're like they're we're, we're close right it's gonna be like any moment now so i'm excited to see that and of course i think that will cause massive hype for the stock and when they also de-spac into lcid that's going to be another catalyst so those are things that you just need to wait and see because the story has to develop, right? Like you have to have the story happen for you to be able to read more pages. And then when you read more pages, the stock will have a new chapter. Speaking of stories, we got a question here beyond your Tesla story. Cause we've all heard the Tesla, the $1.5 million Tesla mistake by selling your Tesla shares to buy a Tesla. Is there any other like fun trading stories? What is your craziest win or like your craziest loss? I'd say like my craziest win was like Amazon options. It took like a thousand to a hundred K, but that was when I was like 16. I literally did not really fully know what I was doing, but it worked. So from then on, I had enough cushion to keep going. I'd say my like most deep convicted play was these IWM leaps I was talking about at the beginning of the yeah. podcast. Cause those were literally a dollar was pretty hot. Right. That was hot too. But like the return on those IWMs was nuts. Like it went from a dollar fifty to almost forty dollars. And I had like a huge size. It was like honestly a quarter of my portfolio at the time. And I obviously trimmed like every little bit it went up and then I locked it in and, and sold the most of it. And I'm I'm out of it now. But that was my favorite trade because I knew that was a play on people misinterpreting how these stocks should be valued, even though the pandemic's happening, this and that. 
that was going to come. And I had two years, right? Those were January, 2022. So I still have a year and like, look where the rut went. I was buying those when the rut was 120, 130. And I was selling those when the rut was over 200 by a lot. And my strike was 195 and 200. But I held those for three or four months and they got beat a bunch of times before they went to that 30, 40 bagger status. We got back in the deep dives today, certainly, and to the point where we actually had to cancel two to three different other stocks we're going to talk about. So we'll push those towards next week. But looking at the week ahead here, I think it's important. Obviously, we have Memorial Day off. So Monday, hopefully everyone spends time with their family, with their friends, takes a moment to just like lean back and reflect because it is important. That's ultimately all that really matters is family, friends, et cetera, right? The markets are amazing. So for those crazy mother efforts that love the markets and want to know what's happening in the week ahead, let's talk about that real quick. So Tuesday, we got the ISM manufacturing PMI. Wednesday, nothing too crazy. And Thursday, we got the non-farm employment and initial jobless claims. So I'll give you this job here, Riley. Let's talk about the earnings week because I know you wanted to say a little bit of something here on Thursday. Yeah, so for the earnings week ahead, we got Tuesday, which has Zoom and HP. Zoom is the one that I'm looking at closer just because you know it's been getting hammered. It's just sitting there basing and it's, it's ready for a big move. Now, Wednesday, we have Advanced Auto Parts, C3AI, and Splunk. C3AI is the one that I'm just, I, I'd rather look at that one over the other ones just because it's been getting hammered as well. And it's ready for that reversal. Now, Thursday, you got DocuSign, MongoDB, ChargePoint, CrowdStrike. But the one that I want to talk just briefly about is Lululemon. So a lot of people are saying that Figs, the new IPO, is going to be the next Lululemon. Obviously, they're in slightly different industries, but they think that because of the comfort and high cost that it's crowned to be the next Lululemon. In my opinion, it just it's not. It, it, I think personally, it's a COVID play and it's a late COVID play. And I just don't see that it has that same potential that Lululemon is just destroying the current market that they're in. And they just continue to grow faster and faster and faster. And things just, the, the, the rapid growth that they just had is due to COVID. It just is. I, I know a lot of people want to say that it's not, but it, it really is. It's going to start slowing down. They don't make that much money. And they're valued now at about $5 billion based on the little rip that they had on Friday. So I just, I don't see it. Yeah, no, I, to I totally understand because like figs, you know, while they are a great source of calcium and potassium, like <laughs> realistically, I don't know if they can sell scrubs. So before we end the podcast, as always, Tony, take it away with some words of wisdom here for the next week. Yeah, it's nice to get the mic back. Most important thing I got to say is a bottom. You never really know if it's that until it's like obviously happening, right? Like until it actually bottoms and you can see a long trend that happens and it's strong and isn't reversing every other day, giving you the idea that it's going to go all the way right back to the bottom, right? I've continued to look at ARC, IWO, growth and spec. Those are like risk assets that people think, hey, like, okay, the market's back on, right? Like turn the faucet open. So those are things that you have to look for, right? And so like important levels are like ARC getting through 114. 117 is that VWAP from March that like it went under and now needs to reclaim that. That's a more important level, in my opinion, than the 200 daily moving average. But above that is that downtrend break, right? So that's a good indicator for the entire growth market and what people want in terms of risk on or risk off. But by no means am I saying that I think that's a bottom at any point because you never know. I think individual companies are showing that they like are growing out of the crap narrative that's been thrown in the markets. And you're seeing a ton of things that are shorted to the ground that are starting to pop because they're shorted so quickly, right? Don't forget the deja vu, AMC, GameStop, they started before the other things went insane. 
right? Because that took a month after that. So I think they were kind of in this deja, deja vu period. We'll see it. But once again, right, like I am in no way able to say, like, I think this is like the end of the drops because things will find their price and then, then that'll take however long it takes. So make sure you stay fluid. Make sure you keep your eyes open. Things can change fast. As we saw Friday, we thought we were going to moon and then we went right back down. But we're still looking like we might pop up soon. So I'm kind of, you know, optimistic. But once again, cautious optimism is always the best near a point of inflection. So with that being said, Pounders, enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. And we'll see you next week with another episode of Pounding the Table. Drip on a honey, I say less, that's me. Y'all on level one, on level three. Pounding on the table for my team. Every night I flex, I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. Yeah. Make a play, don't talk about it. Master P, I'm about it, about it. This one here for all that try to count me out and they still counting. Honestly, I never doubt it. Say the top is never crowded. Well, I'm trying to climb the mountain till I need a few accountants. Stock is rising, perfect timing. I'm in Brickle with the tribe. Shawty sliding, she wants sushi, she wants eel sauce for the rice. I just peel off with the light, took her heels off for the ride.